0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you that I know and those that I don't. It's good to see Jim and Carolyn back. They've been traveling all over the world, teaching and ministering to others. And so um, I know it's been tiring and Jim has been feeling well as well. Uh, But I think he would tell you that Christ sustained him. Um, But we're glad to have them back, so um, they leave in two weeks again, somewhere in there, 12 days I think you said, Um, but so if you get a chance, give them a hug or something, so um, if you know them or if you don't. If you would turn to James chapter 3. I'm going to bring a Kleenex. <clears throat> Sorry. I looked for a box and I couldn't see one. This is not a terribly emotional passage that I'm working through, but for those who don't know, or maybe those who do, but maybe don't know the date,.) Uh... <clears throat> It's a hard week for our family. We lost our son 10 years ago this week, so. And so, I don't know why it's hitting me today more than it has in the years past, but, um, but it is. So let's, let's pray as we begin. I got one. I just, I just need one box. <laughs> I'm going to try to fight it off, so. Um, let's pray as we as we begin. Father, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for indeed our Christ, our our solid rock. Um, We can feel like we're slipping but Father certainly certainly if we are in him by grace through faith then we are standing on firm foundation and Father we are grateful for that. As we look into your word, um, that gives us the strength to stand. Father, we pray that you would be with us, that you would be with me, that I would be able to focus upon this text that you'd be glorified, that those of us who know you would be edified, and those of us in this room, and surely there are some who do not know you, that they would come to know you today for the very first time. We love you, and we pray these things knowing that you are sufficient for every request, even ones like these that determine life and death, and so, Father, we, we thank you that we can come to you, that you hear our prayers, that you delight to hear our prayers, that you answer our prayers, and that your answers are always for your glory and for our good. And that, Father, we can rest. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm inundated with Kleenex now, so we should be good, no matter how things go. So, really, I'm crying because we have a members' meeting later. Those are my favorite. And so we, if you, anyway. James chapter three. We're going to be looking at verses thirteen all the way down through verse 18. James begins with a question, who here is wise? That's a big question, Um, especially uh, when we personalize it and sort of, as though he's asking us, am I wise? Fortunately, as I said, this is how James begins the passage and he's going to explain to us what true wisdom is and what false wisdom is. But before you answer who here among you is wise, I'd imagine that many in James' original audience answered far too quickly, Uh, that at at the question, I'm sure several hands would go up, I am, I'm wise, but their answer is really tied to the issue that that James addressed at the beginning of chapter 3 that we looked at last week, and that's teaching. He strongly advised that not many of his hearers should become teachers. So today's passage is necessarily tied to that, so instead of reading who is wise, read it with the, that sort of in, your, in the back of your mind, who is wise enough to be a teacher. I, I still think they'd get the same answer, me, I am, um, from his hearers. Now we're going to take the same approach this week to this text as we did last week to last week's text, verses 1 through 12. And not just apply it to teachers, but to the entire congregation, which is the right thing for us to do. Last week we said that while issues of the tongue might be more dangerous for teachers because they use more words or use a lot of words, and because they wield a lot of influence with their words, despite that, we'll all be judged for our words. Um, we, we should apply wisdom in much the same way. But teachers should certainly be wise, but as the scriptures speak to us, we should all be wise. But if we ask the same question today, who among us is wise, in almost any room of people that, that we might go around the world, <laughs> I believe that James would get the same reaction or we would get the same reaction that we would imagine that James's audience gave, gave him. And that's because people generally have a high opinion of themselves. I am wise. And because basically they don't grasp what biblical wisdom actually is, and that's where the disconnect is. People mistakenly think that wisdom is exclusively uh, tied to knowledge. That's true, certainly in James' day, but it's true in ours as well. And for that reason, wisdom is uncommon. We might ask, in light of that, James is writing to believers. He's writing to a church of Christians. He's called them brothers several times. And so, why wouldn't they know what biblical wisdom is? We have to remember who, again, that that James is, his audience is. It's Jewish Christians, primarily, who are being persecuted and forced out of their homes by um, Jewish non-Christians. So they've been persecuted and forced out, and where did they go? Well, they mostly went out into the Mediterranean world. What does that have to do with with their struggle with wisdom? Well, think about the larger Greco-Roman world and how the Greco-Roman world thought about wisdom. And as we said before, they primarily attributed it to knowledge. Wisdom equals knowledge. Rome was the military capital of the world, but Athens was certainly the intellectual capital. And so that's how the Greeks were viewed. They were viewed as those who had wisdom, who got wisdom right. They had the father of modern science, Thales, the father of modern medicine, Hippocrates, and Pythagoras was the captain of their math team. And then you had these philosophical giants like Plato and and Aristotle and we could just go on and on and on and on and speaking about all of the men full of knowledge within Greek thought. But you know what all of those guys were? They were men without chests. Uh, Jeremiah pointed me to that phrase this week, men without chests. It's a C.S. Lewis thing from his book, The Abolition of Men. I read just enough about that to see how it fits in with what we're talking. I didn't read the book quickly since Friday. But here's my summary of that. Because man is created in the image of God, man has both intellect, which is reason, and appetite, which is his drive. And so he has a head and he has a stomach. Reason, though, will not be enough to temper uh, the appetites of men who want more and more and more and more. Reason can't control appetite without the organ that sits between the head and the stomach. That's the chest or that's the the heart. And so C.S. Lewis theorizes virtue and virtuous living is then rendered impossible because these are men without chests. And that's the problem with James's audience. They've been influenced by men without chests. What they're missing about wisdom because of the Greek influence and what our world is missing about wisdom is that it's not measured by knowledge. Technological advances don't equate to wisdom, and so our our modern world would get the same sort of treatment from James. Not many of you are wise, and not many of you should be teachers. So James' words to the church then are appropriate for the church today because like them, we're surrounded by men without chests. We're surrounded and influenced by people with heads full of knowledge who have voracious appetites for more and more and more, but lack, outside the church, but, but lack the heart to keep their appetites in check. And so wisdom is altogether practical. And that comes from the heart, because as we see in the wisdom literature, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So, so wisdom is moral, not intellectual. We've said that over and over again since we were in the first chapter. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And we said that the wisdom that God's going to give is found in verse 17 of the passage we'll see today. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere so this list doesn't say anything about how smart you are, that wisdom is, you know, requires a certain IQ. It doesn't say that you must have a master of divinity because wisdom is moral, not intellectual. It's practical. It's not theoretical. And in a word, wisdom is actually Christ-likeness. 1 Corinthians one twenty four and 1 Corinthians 30, which we'll look at a bit later, tell us that Jesus is our Wisdom and the wisdom literature looks forward to that claim that Christ is our wisdom. And so James asks, are you wise? And when we see that question or hear that question or read that question, we need to hear that he's saying, show me. So look at the end of verse 13, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So again, James is using the word works in the same way that he's been using it, especially in in chapter 2 not as something that produces a right relationship with God or not something that produces even saving faith, but works are like fruits. They are produced by saving faith. And so the wise person will show his wisdom by works or by fruits. So what does it look then to be wise? James is going to show us where wisdom comes from, from God, what it looks like, Jesus and how it affects us, a harvest of righteousness sown in peace. But James starts with the opposite of biblical wisdom, a wisdom from below, and it's the exact same thing. Where does it come from? What does it look like? And how does it affect us in our daily life? So read with me verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, Unspiritual or natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder or conflict and every vile practice. So James starts off in verse 14 explaining to us why he doesn't have a whole lot of confidence in their answers regarding the questions that he's asked or the claims that he's made. And it's actually more than that. We should probably read it with more confidence than even that and not see it as if then. But since then, you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Uh, The reason I say that is because of what we see in chapter 4. The very first verse, he begins to mention the quarrels that are happening amongst the people. And then in verse 2, he explains why it's happening. You desire and do not have, so you murder. And so in chapter 4, he's going to give us the very real-life issues that are going on, the real-life circumstances that portray all that he's saying here especially in chapter 3 in regards to the tongue and now in regards to to wisdom and so if you have any of that going on you say you're not wise you are not possessing or you are not operating under a wisdom that is from above so after that now we see the you know where from where does wisdom from below come from? Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So earthly first, it's from the earth. And so the primary idea here is that it's not from above and so it's not heavenly. Now we, we talked about this a bit in our Sunday school class when, we were, when I was teaching on on 1 Corinthians 15 a few weeks ago. And sort of the, some of the ideas that were circulating outside of the church and influencing the church were ideas of naturalism or materialism. And the idea, basically, for what our purposes is here, is that what happens on earth is really all there is. Nothing happens you know, after this life, and so neither is there really anything to look forward to beyond this life. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 8 came to see the vanity of such low and earthly wisdom, as he calls it in verse 17. And he says that what that leads to in verse 15 is that man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. And so basically what he's saying is, eat, drink, and be merry. Live for what's here. Chase and get what you can grab now. Now, we're seeing this all around us, how everyone and or every people group is fighting and murdering to get more and more power over others. So this comes out of the selfish ambition that we're going to speak about in just a moment. But the, the next description tells us even more, unspiritual. As I sort of hinted a moment ago, some of your translations might read natural. That might actually be more helpful because it probably puts in our mind where he's going with this. But it's from the Greek word for suke. Uh, again, we looked at that word, um, in First Corinthians 15 at Sunday School a few weeks ago, but it, it's where we get the word soul from. And so it's psychology or psychology should be the study of the soul. But modern psychologists have gone a different route. They've abandoned true wisdom for the soul, which makes them largely unhelpful and altogether dangerous. They try to cure symptoms because curing symptoms is how you really ignore causes and curing symptoms makes for fading shallow pleasure or happiness. Why go deeper if today is really all there is? I think James' idea here, though, is what Paul is talking about in First in Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerns That first word, the natural person, could be either natural person or unspiritual person. Well, this is an unsaved person. He's unspiritual because the Holy Spirit has not given him life. He's not caused him to be born from above. He's not opened his eyes to the truth to discern. Truth is relative to the natural unspiritual person. So people today can define something based really on however they want to it's all it's all relative to them people today can't even define something so obvious as what is a woman and how are they going to then teach us about what the the ultimate pinnacle of all creation is and that is of course the the glory of God natural or unspiritual wisdom says life is all about you you want to be a woman be a woman if it makes you happy even though you're a man or life is about you. Kill your baby if it's an un- inconvenience. Now, that's going to work itself out in many ways that are probably we're more vulnerable to, which we'll look at in just a moment, but, but you get the idea. Wisdom from, a bl- from below is, is earthly, and it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. Older translations would probably read devilish, and I think that's the intent. The devil led a revolt against God to serve himself. Wisdom would have told him that, that God alone is, is worthy of worship because God alone is good. The devil hated, opposed, stood against God. So so wisdom that is not from above is not just earthly, about here and now. It's not just unspiritual about your happiness or your glory, but is also devilish, opposed to God. And that's where it all comes from, from a decaying earth, from men who are dead in their sins, and from hell. That's where it comes from. What does wisdom from below look like, though? So so notice as you look at verses 14 and 16, James really zeroes in on two primary things. So this is what wisdom looks like, and really it's an internal part um, that, that causes some external things. But... But he mentions bitter jealousy and selfish ambition twice. Once in verse 14, once in verse 16. And so that, that's it. Wisdom from below looks like bitter jealousy. Wisdom from below looks like uh, selfish ambition. So first, bitter jealousy. It's a, jealousy is, is an emotion. I think we get that. But it's an internal affection That moves us to act with urgency. By itself, it's a a neutral word. There's good jealousy and there's bad jealousy. For instance, we read that that God says of himself that he is a jealous God. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Phineas, who stopped the plague by, by killing two people who were fornicating. God, in reference to Phinehas, says to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. And so jealousy can be good. God is a jealous God, and he praises Phinehas for having his jealousy. It's good for men to be jealous of their own wives, for the affections of their wives, they would not be shared with others, the same of Women should be jealous of their husbands as well. But that's not the kind of jealousy that James certainly has in mind. It's not the good kind. It's not a God-honoring jealousy. James is specifically referring to a self-exalting kind of jealousy, a jealousy that moves to act with urgency for something self-advancing or self-promoting or self-focused. We'll look at an example in just a moment of how that actually affects us even within within the church. So that's bitter jealousy, and then selfish ambition. Something that we hear a lot in terms of politics, and this is kind of how this word often plays itself out in the scriptures, but uh, is is partisanship, right? We we, we hear uh, that that quite a bit when Democrats and Republicans vote exclusively uh, down party lines, whatever the issue is. Republicans or Democrats refuse to cross party lines because they're protecting their they're base or they're protecting their agenda or their own platform. And so no matter what, there's no compromise. Now Paul used the word in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 in this way. Some indeed preach Christ from envy, so there's one word that we already mentioned, and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So, so we have both words there, envy or jealousy and selfish ambition. But some men saw Paul as a rival. He was a competitor to them. And they preached Christ then to gain something from Paul, take something from Paul. They reveled in the fact that Paul was in prison and seemed, Paul, from Paul's estimation, that they preached really to throw salt in his wounds. And so that's it. it Looks out for me, myself, no matter what. No compromise. Now, that's something that the world actually loves. That's something that the world celebrates. I'll die before I give this up. It's the ugliness of pride. I deserve this, and I'll do whatever it takes to get this, or to keep this, or to protect this, or to not share this. So, putting them together, selfish ambition, is really the motive and jealousy is the internal emotion that drives the person to act with urgency uh, to get what another has or protect what he already has or doesn't want to share it with another. And so their intellect cannot control their appetites. And so they're driven to just do whatever they can to get it. They're men without chests. Well, how does that kind of wisdom affect people? How does wisdom from below affect people? Verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So I think disorder, the most helpful way to translate that is actually conflict. And I think that's the idea if you look at chapter 4, if you look back at the first 12 verses, that that's the idea that James is pushing forward here. This is what comes from a wisdom from below. and so wisdom from earth... Wisdom from the unregenerate man, wisdom from the devil, causes jealousy and selfish ambition, which leads to unchecked appetites, which cause conflict. And so the picture here is of a person who lacks self-control. He, he's always in conflict. He or she is, is, is running constantly, it seems, to conflict. It's conflict, and it's conflict, and it's conflict. Throughout their life, everywhere they go, it seems like they just can't live without Some sort of conflict. And sadly, this happens in churches. And so not so much now, but many years ago, that was the primary work of elders within this body, was dealing with people who seem to feed off of conflict. I pray that that has changed. They're no longer here. I pray that that is changed. But it happens even within Churches. So disorder. James says that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder or there will be conflict. And then he says, every vile practice. I don't think we need Greek words to understand what this is talking about. Every vile practice. This is where this comes from, a wisdom from below that can actually in sort of believers begin operating under. Every vile practice. I wish James had a list for us here that just sort of followed, you know, that we could sort of see what he's talking about. But you know who liked lists? Paul liked lists. Galatians 5:19 through 21, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. (laughs) Sexual immorality, where does that come from? It comes from desire for a personal pleasure which is contrary to what pleases God. It's something for myself idolatry. What did Calvin say about our hearts, that our hearts are idol-making factories? Paul says that the totally depraved person will exchange the glory of God for the glory of things like crawling things, like bugs. Self is almost always the idol, and so selfishness, enmity and strife and rivalries and divisions, conflict. It comes from partisanship. It comes from a spirit of of me and no compromise. But all this shows itself in other ways. Where does sinful discouragement come from? But a desire to, uh, to be treated better than we are because we think we deserve better than how we're treated. Or sinful anxiety, a desire to be in control of what God is in control of. Or sinful discontentment that comes from a desire to be valued more highly than we are. Jealousy and selfish ambition want to, to impress others and want to control and conquer and dominate and ultimately be exalted. And it shows itself in the church. We can see it in the defense of particular doctrines that we are <laughs> defending. And, and, and it's, it's selfish ambition and it's bitter jealousy that's driving it when anger comes out and malice and name-calling and character assassination. Stuff we see all over Twitter all of the time, seems like, amongst Christians. Or we can see it when we're championing a particular cause that, that we're passionate about. How do you know when it's coming from jealousy and selfish ambition? Well, we grow discontent and we Grow discouraged and bitter when someone isn't appreciating my cause or my ministry the way I do. Why don't you care about what I care about as much as I care about it? Why aren't you as excited about this, as, as excited as I am about this? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your faith? What's wrong with your Christ-likeness? You need to read the word. You need to pray more so you'll be more excited about this like like I am. Service and ministry can also be places that we show that we are operating from a wisdom from below. See, Jealousy and selfish ambition construct images of people where we decide for ourselves what they are and what they should be. And so it sort of builds walls between us, causing conflict, leading to every vile practice. Making division where Christ has died to make peace, to bring unity. It can look like zeal for the Lord when really it's zeal for ourselves and our own perceived kingdom. So that's wisdom from below. I should go down it this way, down from below. What about wisdom from above? The wisdom from above is first pure. Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So where, where does wisdom from above come from? Obviously from above. But if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, quickly. It feels like we're only halfway through, but we're further than halfway through because we've done a lot of the work ahead of time. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, and because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I think that kind of sounds like what James is saying in James chapter 3. Wisdom from above. What is that? I love the wording. What does it make us think of? I think it makes us think of Christ. What he says right here specifically, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. For quick clarity, Paul is not making the point that Jesus is the source of our wisdom in this verse. That he is. He is. But Paul's point is that Jesus himself became to us wisdom from God. So, thinking back, prior to coming to know Christ in a saving way, we too were men without chests, which who had knowledge or reason because we were created in the image of God, and we certainly had voracious appetites, appetites for our own selves and appetites for our own glory and our perceived kingdom. Just like everyone else who operates under a wisdom from below. We had no chest, no heart, no a heart of flesh to to control or even change our appetites. But here, wisdom came from above. Jesus came. Jesus lived perfectly, wise, as we'll see in just a moment. And because of his death and resurrection, became to us wisdom from above. So how does he become wisdom to us? Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. That's how the verse starts. By grace, through faith, we were united to Christ, placed in Him in some mystical way. I'm not going to say anything more about that. It's too high for me to explain any further right, right now. Um, but by the regenerating power of the Spirit, we believed the gospel and we were placed in Him. He became wisdom from God to us who were formerly foolish. What did that result in? So the three words that follow wisdom, they're righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. They're not steps in the process of salvation. They're three different pictures or three different metaphors of the same event, which is our conversion. So on the one hand, our union to Christ by grace through faith is righteousness, meaning a legal right standing with God or a justification righteousness is wisely perfectly keeping the law Christ is wisdom to us in that sense legally he kept the law that we could not keep and so in Christ God sees us as righteous and that's wisdom from above on another hand our union to Christ by grace through faith is sanctification or holiness so this isn't legal righteousness but ethical righteousness Through our union to Christ, we are set apart or set within a realm of wise living, which we'll define in just a moment. In Christ, we're able to discern the things of God, back from 1 Corinthians 2.14, discern things from God that we could not discern prior as a natural man. And so that's wisdom. On the other hand, our union to Christ by grace through faith is redemption. So don't think here how Paul normally uses the word redemption to be uh, delivered from bondage. But instead here, and I think this is the idea, delivered to freedom. (laughs) Think positively. Freedom to obey God from the heart is wisdom. Freedom to obey God from the heart is wise. And so in Christ, we are free to be wise. And that's wisdom. wisdom came from above again we were men without chests with sinful appetites jealousy and selfish ambition within ourselves setting ourselves at the center of our universe building our own kingdom causing conflict committing all manners of evil practices but the wisdom from god became to us the wisdom we needed in Christ, God sees us perfectly wise. In Christ, we are moved into the realm or into the kingdom where wisdom is lived out. And in Christ, we are freed to live wisely. The only response to that is something like the end of, of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And so for people who struggle with wisdom, who have a wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic, who would come up with a plan like this in order for us to have wisdom or to be wise and to live in wisdom? Only God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So that's where true wisdom came from, from above in Christ, through his incarnation to us by grace, through, the, through faith, by the Spirit's work. Wisdom. What does wisdom from above look like? Starting in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you, but is by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Here the, I'll just read a definition, and I have some of it in your outline, but here's the complete definition from the complete word study dictionary. It says, Meekness, Is seen not in man's outward behavior only; rather, it is an inwrought grace of the soul, and the expressions of it are primarily towards God. It's the attitude whereby we accept God's dealings with us as good, and do not dispute as or or resist. resist. Now, we could add to that, but I don't think we need to at this point. Meekness, as what wisdom looks like, is is James' way of setting it against the, the jealousy and selfish ambition. The wisdom from below says that I'm uppermost and I'll get what I deserve. But with the wisdom from above and meekness, we see everything that God does is right. Everything, every way that he treats us is right. And everything comes from his hand. So meekness is to know that we don't deserve any better than we're getting. Jealousy and selfish ambition want to exalt self, but the one who is meek humbles himself under the goodwill of his heavenly Father. I think you can see how this is important or opposite to bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So was Jesus meek? Of course. In the book Gentle and Lowly that Kenny Turner gave to me by Dane Ortland, he points it out. He says, in the 89 chapters of text in all four Gospels, only once does Jesus say anything about his heart? Once in 89 chapters must be a big deal to him for him to express himself in this way. This is what my heart is like. And so in Matthew 11 verse 29, here's what he says, I am meek and lowly in heart. <laughs> I am meek and I'm lowly in heart. That, that's something that he's glorying in, not shying away from. The world sees it as weakness and something to be hated and beat down and pushed aside, but Jesus holds it out in front of everyone. I'm meek, and I'm lowly in heart. He's no man without a chest. So are you meek? Do you glory in it like Jesus did? Let's keep going. The rest of these we're going to go through very quickly, because we defined all of this a few months back when we looked, and surely it's right in the front of all of your memories who are here, when we looked at chapter 1, verse 5. If you'd like to go more to detail about these, this list, you can go online and, and listen to that sermon. Um, so the first one is pure. So this is from verse 17. Wisdom from above, it's meek. It has meekness, but verse 17, it's pure. Wisdom that is pure is free from any stain or blemish. So chapter 1, verse 27, an unstained life, and is free from anything that reeks of double-mindedness. So wisdom that is pure is unmixed. And makes us singly focused upon God. Nothing from the world tugs at our heart. Nothing from the world distracts our eyes. We're singly focused. Was Jesus pure? Was He single-minded? Absolutely. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He is pure and He makes us pure. Pure. He's also singly devoted, Hebrews ten seven. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And so God's wisdom is, is holy, it's unblemished, and singly focused upon God. And so the question is, are you pure? Are you growing in your purity? If you're His by grace through faith, Jesus has washed you, and Jesus has directed your eyes and shown you that God is worthy of all your attention. Don't be influenced by men without chests. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is being pure like Jesus. Second one, peaceable. Not conflict, but peace. And that's what we should love. And so Proverbs 3.17, her ways are uh, are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. This is speaking of wisdom. It's what Christ has given us through his blood on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, tearing down all the walls that before divided us. Is Jesus peaceable? <laughs> yes. Romans 5.1 Therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's why he was sent to make peace on earth between those that the Father had given to him before the foundation of the earth and his Father. Again so much that he loved us. that <laughs> He died to erase all the enmity that was between us and God. So he's commanded us to be likewise wise. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do you love peace? Well, don't be influenced by men without chests. Wisdom is not knowledge, wisdom is is peaceable, like Jesus. It's also gentle in a word, uh, in a world of men without chests, there will be time to defend um, the truths that we hold so dear, like when Paul opposed Peter in Galatians chapter 2, when the gospel was at stake. We won't fight for fighting's sake. Gentleness means we'll be willing to give up our rights as Christ did. Was anyone as gentle as he? he? He rightly used his power and authority for the good of his people. And his gentleness with burdened sinners is certainly legendary. Not breaking the bruised reed, not snuffing the barely burning ember. Those who are weary and heavy laden, he welcomed to himself with, with gentleness for all of Christ's zeal and purity do not despise the weak and the lowly so are you gentle don't be influenced by men without chests wisdom is not knowledge but it's gentle like Jesus wisdom from above is easy to is 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 open to reason it's easy to yield it's to it's to listen to and it's to yield to and it's submit to oftentimes others in our discussions and in our debates or even in our Arguments. Was Jesus open to reason? Of course. In the garden of Gethsemane. Take this cup from me. But not my will be done. Your will be done. Don't be influenced by men without chests. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is open to reason. Amongst others. Like Jesus. Wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. Wisdom from above overlooks the faults of others. And offenses and so, is so full of mercy. Someone seeks forgiveness, we eagerly grant it. Was Jesus full of mercy? (laughs) Surely so. Jesus was moved with compassion to care for his people and, and meet their needs. We see it over and over and over again throughout the scriptures that Jesus was full of mercy. So much so that it overflowed to the people around him. Are you full of mercy? Does it overflow to your family, to your friends, to your fellow church members? Are you quick to forgive? I don't be influenced by men without chess. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits, like Jesus. And then impartial and, and, and sincere. Wisdom from above hates hypocrisy. In itself, what you see is, 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 just, is just what you get. People see us, they know us. Different situations call for different responses to different things, and so we rejoice with some, we weep with some, we encourage others, we rebuke others, but underneath there is a genuineness, and there is an honesty to it. And certainly Jesus was impartial. Certainly he was sincere. Are you? The repeated phrase, don't be influenced by men without chests. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is impartial and sincere like Jesus. So this is what the wisdom from above does on the inside of us. We're not boiling and seizing with anger because of a driving force within us and an appetite to get more and more and to take from others or protect what we have. Wisdom from above is, is meek, but it's pure and it's peaceable and it's gentle and it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial and genuine. Wisdom from above is likeness. So where do you need to grow? Go back to chapter one, read verse five. If any of you likes wisdom, ask God, and he will give it to you. What a treasure that is. And lastly, how does wisdom from above affect us? Verse 18, the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Two ways that, that wisdom from above, I think, focuses or, or affects us here is righteousness. First. But it goes back to 13, I think. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Works that James has in mind are the ones that he's had in mind all along and the ones that he's going to have in mind throughout the rest of the letter, and that is a bridal tongue, a compassionate heart, and an unstained life. There are more than that. There are fruits outside of that. But those are the ones that he's particularly addressing within this letter. But in light of that, all that we've said today, do you bridle your tongue in the meekness of wisdom? Is it a wisdom from above that, that guides how you use your tongue as you speak to others? Your then your words will be used to build others up, not tear them down. Do you show impartiality in the in meekness of wisdom? How do you love those who are around us? Wisdom from above will lead us to bear the burdens and weep with them. Do you have an unstained life in the meekness of wisdom? Wisdom from above will produce hatred for other wisdoms, for foolishness for the sins that come out of that. Seek to kill it in our own life. If that's you, then meditate on 1 Corinthians 1.30, what it means that Christ has become wisdom to you. And lastly, this, this peace. I think James ends here with peace because in light of the conflict that's going on within the congregation that he's already written about, that he's about to write about really harshly in chapter 4, I think peace is the ultimate goal that he has here for wisdom, which makes sense. Jesus brought us peace through His death, and it's this peace or unity that He's given to the church to guard and to protect. I think it's the goal here because peace is, the, is what stands in stark contrast to everything else that's going on outside of us. It stands in stark contrast to a world that that can't quiet their appetites. It stands in contrast to a world of power grabs and hatred and all things division. Peace stands out, it shines, it shines brightly. The church displays beautiful unity. When they have a wisdom from above, those outside of us just can't fathom. We have distinctions like the world has distinctions. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. But distinctions in the church don't divide the church. They're celebrated as emblems of the peace that Christ has won for us by becoming wisdom to us. The world outside of us knows nothing of this. What I think is most beautiful and most helpful here is an application to close on is the wording here of harvest, and so it tells us here, especially right here, that wisdom is a seed, that that even foolishness is a seed, but we'll focus on wisdom as a seed. It's a seed that's sown, and this seed always blossoms, this seed always blooms, this seed always grows into something. And so there's a principle at work here that we see throughout the Scriptures, but a couple of places. 2 Corinthians 9.6 The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. If wisdom is a seed, we should be sowing bountifully. Galatians 6.7 For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. If we sow wisdom, the promise here is that we'll reap a harvest of righteousness. And so we're sowing this amongst each other. So that works of righteousness would would bloom within our midst and that peace and strong unity would be formed amongst all of us despite any distinctions we might have. But it's also something that we sow outside of us as we throw out the seed of wisdom to a world that has a wisdom from below that causes them to hate and kill and steal. We do that by sharing the gospel of the one who came to bring us Peace. And so that's the application. Do you want to be wise? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not wise. You're foolish. You're a fool. You've been playing the fool your whole life. Denying Christ is, is what you need. I can do it on my own. I don't need God. You do. Certainly now your life is marked by conflict. But ultimately, the rest of your eternity will be marked by conflict. As a sovereign God punishes you with his own hand for all eternity unless you come to Christ Christ is peace to us, he can be peace to you if you would believe the gospel that says he is God that says he came and he lived perfectly that he died on the cross for the sins of his people and was raised three days later believe that he will be wisdom to you do you want to grow in wisdom? As I said before, ask God and look to Christ who is our wisdom to become more like him. Do you want to sow wisdom? We'll sow it amongst each other. Sow it out in the world. Sow wisdom. And we'll reap a harvest of righteousness. Sown in peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the goodness of your word, of you certainly to us. We thank you for Christ, who is wisdom to us. We pray that for us who do know you, Father, we pray that we would, by your spirit, by the means of grace, by beholding him through all of them, that you would conform us more and more to his image, that we might operate more and more fully under this wisdom that is from above. And for those who don't know you here today, Father, we pray. That you would cause them to see, cause them to know their standing outside of Christ, the dread of that, but also the hope that is found in Christ, if they would believe. Father, we pray that you would grant them that faith today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.